This is the NPO Media Podcast, produced by volunteers with NAMI New York City, Staten Island. My name is Pete, and for this episode, I spoke with Gene Kaplan, an experienced professional clinician. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I've worked at South Beach Psychiatric Center now since 1977. I've been in the field since December of 1970. I started at Bronx Psychiatric Center back in the days when it was called Bronx State Hospital and our parent agency was called the Department of Mental Hygiene. So that kind of dates me as a prehistoric creature in this field. Well, I'm sure in that time you've seen many changes in the field. Why don't you give us a little bit more history about your experience working at South Beach Psychiatric Center? So I came, as I said, to South Beach in 1977. I was hired to be the Assistant Director of Education Training by Milton M. Berger, MD, who was a very prominent psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, was a life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, was a pioneer in the use of group therapy, and had been the director of psychiatric residency training at Columbia University's uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons. And he was brought here to South Beach by the center's original executive director, Alvin Mesnikoff, who was also a Columbia psychiatrist and was the first executive director of South Beach. They both started in Brooklyn in 1969, And uh, Dr. Berger, who was a pioneer in the use of video in psychiatry as a way of two things. One was to provide video feedback to psychiatric patients so that they could learn from the images and the sound of what they were saying, as well as to use video as a way of bringing training to more psychiatrists and other mental health professionals, psychologists, social workers, and others. And so one of the conditions for his coming to South Beach was that a state-of-the-art television studio be built here, uh, which still exists and has been updated from time to time over the years. Dr. Berger really set the gold standard for bringing the leading researchers and clinicians in our field to South Beach Psychiatric Center. When I was hired in 1977 by him, it was essentially to help him bring a conference that he called Beyond the Double Bind, which had been successfully run during the summer of 1977 at the Barbizon Plaza Hotel in Manhattan, long gone. And the Beyond the Double Bind conference brought together the leading researchers and clinicians on the latest developments in schizophrenia at the time. I know that in the early days of NAMI, a group of mothers got together and formed a support group. They had been essentially blamed for their children's mental illness. Today, those theories, the beyond the double bind theory of schizophrenia, has been debunked, demystified, disproven, and people have really moved on from there. The double bind theory involved the uh, notion of the so-called schizophrenogenic mother whose faulty communications with her young daughter or son led to all kinds of communication disruptions and distortions in thinking and distortions in perception. There was really no evidence to support the theory, but it was the theory of the day. The so-called schizophrenogenic mother who put her young child in a double bind that was very frustrating to the child and would eventually lead to the development of schizophrenia in late adolescence or early adulthood. 
So Dr. Berger brought some of the most famous family therapists of the day, including Salvador Mnuchin, Murray Bowen, Carl Whitaker. The list goes on and on and on. He retired in 1983, and then I became the director of education and training. And although as a social worker, I had little, if any, business getting involved in new developments in biological psychiatry, that seemed to me to be the paramount issue as new developments were occurring all the time with the development of of new pharmacotherapies, new psychosocial treatments, and so on. So one of the first projects that I got involved in here in terms of training was, it was called the New York State Family Support Demonstration Project. And the person responsible for that statewide was a psychiatrist from Columbia named Bill McFarlane, who is still very active working up in Maine. He's the chairman of psychiatry, I believe, still at the University of Maine. And his thinking was that schizophrenia and rehospitalizations, relapse, was primarily the result of high levels of expressed emotion that were found in many families' homes, and that one way to address it was to teach families how they could more effectively manage their own feelings and deal with adult children who, in 50% or more of cases in New York City, people with schizophrenia who had been hospitalized were being discharged right back to the home. So the idea was that If family members are going to be caretakers of people with schizophrenia, it's incumbent on us as mental health professionals to train them in how to be most effective with them. So we trained a lot of our staff and how to run family psychoeducation groups. This demonstration project that ran here from 1984 through 89 or 90 was really taking a look at whether single-family psychoeducation was better than or not better than multiple family psychoeducation. It was Dr. McFarlane's belief that by bringing groups of families together, each of which had at least one member who was a young adult with schizophrenia, that expanding the social network by having a multi-family group would tend to reduce the amount of stigma that families felt and the shared experience would help to help family members to feel as if they're not alone, that they have support, that there are other people going through the same experience, that they are not unique, that there's nothing wrong with them because they have a family member with schizophrenia, that there are so many others, you know, solid families who just have had this misfortune to have a a young adult develop schizophrenia. Gene, at this time, I'll mention the NAMI Family to Family Education Program. Family to Family is an evidence-based, free, 12-week family education program for family caregivers of individuals with severe mental illness. The course is taught by trained family members. All instruction and course materials are free to class participants, and over 300,000 family members have graduated from this national program. And in fact, this was the first educational program I participated in when I first joined NAMI New York City, Staten Island. Absolutely. So that was one of the first big projects that I got involved in here at South Beach. What I'm doing now is I'm doing special projects. What are some of the treatment modalities that you brought to the facility? 
During my time as director of education training, I had brought in trainers from Aaron Beck's Institute at the University of Pennsylvania and from Albert Ellis's Institute for Rational Emotive Therapy here in New York. The two types of treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive therapy, are very, very similar. And they have amassed a huge database of their effectiveness particularly in the treatment of depression, uh, but also anxiety disorders, panic disorders, substance use disorders, gambling problems, marital problems, and so on. So in the mid-90s, I brought the two directors of training from each of those two institutes, Beck's in Philadelphia, Ellis's in New York, to do a, uh, I think it was a 10-part, 30-hour training program on cognitive behavioral therapy for what we were then calling MICA patients, mentally ill chemical abusers. Now the current term for such clients of ours is uh, those with co-occurring disorders, a major mental health disorder, as well as a substance use disorder. And I thought it was a phenomenal training program. It was a 10-part series. We trained a lot of people. We had some excellent clinical consultations by our two consultants from those two institutes. And I have been a big proponent of this type of treatment since those days. Which brings us up to, most recently, South Beach Psychiatric Center has been involved with Paul Grant, who is a psychologist at Aaron Beck's Center for Research in Psychopathology in Philadelphia. Dr. Grant is Dr. Beck's number two man. Dr. Beck is still very active in the field. He's, I believe, 96, or he may be 97 now. Dr. Grant's variation on Dr. Beck's theme of cognitive behavioral therapy is he, Dr. Grant, modified CBT so that it would be an effective tool for working with patients with major mental disorders such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, and so on. The types of patients that we find here at South Beach Psychiatric Center on our inpatient units whose lives have really been stalled by the fact that their symptoms are persistent. They have become demoralized by the fact that they've been repeatedly hospitalized or that their hospitalization episodes have lasted longer and longer, that medications that once worked for them no longer work for them, that they've developed medical problems that don't allow them to use medications that had been effective for them for a period of time. And so Dr. Grant's variation on the theme of cognitive behavioral therapy is called recovery-oriented cognitive therapy. It's abbreviated as CTR. Can you describe what CTR is? Basically is aimed at patients who have been labeled as, you know, kind of backward patients on inpatient units, people who have really given up on making any significant strides in their lives. And there's a fundamental belief inherent in CTR that every patient, even those who've been in the hospital here for 20 years, 25 years, that they have a core of positive beliefs and aspirations that can be tapped into by staff who are trained in how to access those fundamentally positive core beliefs. It may take a staff member a while to figure out how to get to those aspirations. It may involve asking someone who's, you know, 50 or 55 years old, 
you know, what do you remember about your family life? Positive experiences? Did you go camping with your dad when you were eight years old, 10 years old? Were you in the Boy Scouts? Do you remember, you know, here in New York and Brooklyn or, you know, playing stickball and having a good time? So it's a matter of tapping into a more positive level of functioning before the illness set in. Most major mental illnesses, the age of onset is late adolescence, early adulthood, up to age 30, let's say. So there typically is a higher level of functioning prior to the onset of the illness. And if you can tap into that, you know, the things that the person liked to do. One of the patients that we're working with right now in CTR is on our structured treatment unit, which is the most secure unit in the hospital for patients who are having a difficult time uh, making progress or even being managed effectively on our intermediate care units. And this is a, a still young man. I believe he's under 40. You know, thinks so fondly of his days when he was 10, 12, 14 years old and, you know, was into baseball and was into football and, you know, had good experiences with his father. And so all of that is being used to build on aspirations for how he might move on and build a life for himself outside of the hospital. So that really is the underlying goal of CTRs, how to build a life, a meaningful life, a rich life outside the hospital. South Beach also has three transitional living residences, TLRs. The transitional living residences by design and by regulation are supposed to be for three to six month periods. And then the, the client, the resident, is hopefully going to move on to more independent living in the community, a supported apartment or an independent apartment for that matter. But what we find is that some clients are discharged from our inpatient units after long stays here to the TLR. They're able to manage in the TLR with some success, but it seems as if moving on to that next level of more independent living seems like an unattainable goal. But again, we're working very closely with a number of our TLR residents to tap into those aspirations, to tap into things that they enjoy doing. Maybe it's cooking, maybe it's crocheting, things that they can do with others that may take them into a, a broader social world that provides more sustenance. So CTR is something that I think of as being very promising. We've only been involved with it since February of this year, so I think there's a rosy future ahead for CTR. Our staff who've been trained are extremely enthusiastic about it. It's a very simple approach. It relies on a tool that Dr. Grant and his team developed called a recovery map, which is just a one-page document that our staff have been completing after they, they begin working with a CTR client on our inpatient units or in our TLRs. And it leads to identifying aspirations and goals. What are the obstacles for achieving those aspirations and goals? What types of help might assist the person in getting there? CTR, uh, when Dr. Grant did an overview of CTR here, as a, a kickoff to the m much more intensive training that's been going on now for eight or nine months. He referred to a school of psychology called positive psychology, which he said that when he was in training 30 years ago or so, you know, he poo-pooed that it's kind of a Pollyanna-ish approach that everyone can get better and, you know, just look at things in a positive way. 
But he's come to believe that, you know, the belief in hope and that there's hope for everyone is really the foundation for people to make incredible progress. Some of the training, one part of the training that I found most fascinating, and you can find this online, I will give uh, Pete the link later on, is on YouTube. And we've been using it in training our other staff here at South Beach as well. And it's a link showing how CTR was used in a, a psychogeriatric nursing home. And it shows a clinician, a social worker, I believe, who was trained by Dr. Grant, using it with an older woman with a major mental illness. I don't know what her diagnosis is, but I'm sure it's a major mental illness, who looks to be in her early or mid-70s and apparently, according to the voiceover, had been using a walker to get around for the last two or three years. And the therapist is playing, the woman is uh, uh, Hispanic, and the therapist invites her to try to teach him how to dance salsa. And he starts playing, you know, some Latin music, salsa, and she pushes the walker aside and starts dancing with him. And the narrator doing the voiceover shows the broad smile on her face as she says to the therapist, you're not so bad, you know, uh, I have some hope for you that you can actually learn how to dance. And here she is, you know, throwing aside her walker and teaching someone how to dance, showing that there, you know, not only is hope, but that there is this kernel of energy in her that somehow was uh, unleashed just by the notion of hearing the music and teaching someone something that she knows how to do, you know, making her into the teacher, making her into the, the dance therapist, rather than being a backward psychogeriatric nursing home client using a walker and being just stuck there installed in her life. A topic that has come up in our family support groups has been DBT. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. In 2012, I was asked to develop a program that would enhance the overall inpatient clinical program. And so I had been very involved with dialectical behavior therapy through a consultant that I found who had been trained by Marshall Linehan. Marshall Linehan is the developer of DBT. She's based in the University of Washington in Seattle. And so I brought Lisa Lyons, another psychologist, to consult on two or three of our most challenging cases, oh, back around 1998 or 2000, in that general range. And these are people who have terrible self-harm histories, people who were very much involved with cutting, with burning themselves, making suicide attempts, ingesting foreign objects, and so on. Some had been essentially starving themselves to death as a slow form of suicide. And I was so impressed with Dr. Lyons's use of DBT techniques in working with some of these clients with whom she had just remarkable success in some cases. So I proposed to our cabinet in 2012 that we train a group of our staff in dialectical behavior therapy, which is a SAMHSA-identified evidence-based practice for the treatment particularly of women with a history of making suicide attempts, 
and who have other self-harm behaviors. I thought that even some of the techniques that are involved in DBT and the underlying assumptions of DBT that every patient that we work with, regardless of their diagnosis, wants to build a life that's worth living outside the hospital, that the hospital is no place to live one's life. And DBT is totally focused on identifying a way or a number of ways that one might be able to build a life outside the hospital and figure out ways to self-manage and self-regulate those disturbing emotions and thoughts that occur so that the individual has tools to use other than relieving the anxiety or the depression through cutting or burning or other painful experiences. Because we know the research shows that even relatively innocuous self-harm activities, uh, such as superficial cutting of the skin, the more frequent that something like that occurs, the greater the risk for an eventual suicide. It kind of comes out of auto insurance industry's uh, research, which clearly shows that frequency breeds severity. And the more frequently you're in a fender bender, the more likely it is that you're going to be on a really horrendous crash. And similarly, with people with borderline personality disorder, the more frequently they cut or burn or starve themselves or swallow batteries or whatever it may be, the more likely it is that they will eventually make a fatal suicide attempt. So we've established a strong DBT program in our power center, the name we use for our psychiatric rehabilitation program for inpatients. And we also have a couple of DBT teams in our outpatient clinics. If someone is interested in finding a therapist credentialed to provide DBT therapy, how would they go about doing that? DBT, if you go to Marshall Linehan's website, uh, which is behavioraltech, that's one word, dot org, there's a hot link up at the top of that homepage that says find a clinician. And once you click on find a clinician, it'll give you a listing of all the states in the United States and actually in foreign countries now as well. And once you click on Nebraska, let's say, it will give you a list of all the cities in Nebraska that uh, have a DBT program. To be listed, what Dr. Linehan requires is that to be listed, you have to be part of a team. She believes that working with people with borderline personality disorder is such difficult work that it can't be done solo that you need at least a four-person team, and that team needs to meet weekly in a consultation team meeting, which essentially is therapy for the therapist and uh, for the purpose of discussing how difficult the work is and putting everyone's head together to discuss potential solutions to uh, seemingly intractable problems. But again, you can find a clinician at that Find a Clinician link at behavioraltech.org. A frequent topic for discussion in NAMI family support groups that someone might have read on the internet that there's an alternative treatment option. And people will ask, is this something legitimate? Can we try it? Because sometimes people really are desperate to find help for their loved ones. So what I'd say, you know, uh, basically to support only evidence-based treatments and not to just go off because someone... Some psychiatrist or psychologist had a brilliant idea that this type of therapy might work or that type of therapy might work. I think that NAMI family members, I'm sure, have 
been all too often subject to this kind of, you know, kind of snake oil salesmanship of different kinds of treatments that supposedly uh, will work. And they work. You know, there may be anecdotal cases of particular, peculiar kind of treatment working for a given client. And I hope that all NAMI members are aware that SAMHSA maintains a database, a website called the National Registry of Evidence-Based Practices, NREP, which lists all of the evidence-based treatments by diagnosis, chronologically, and so on. And you can dig down into any of those that you find there and find out what the evidence base is for a particular treatment. As I mentioned with borderline personality disorder and uh, dialectical behavior therapy, you know, the original studies that Marshall Linehan did were on women who had made suicide attempts and who had a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. For DBT to be listed on NREP as an evidence-based treatment, you know, that treatment had to be replicated in other sites besides the University of Washington with other larger populations. And now that it has, it's listed as an evidence-based practice, as are many others. You know, there are probably 200 at this point evidence-based practices that are recognized by SAMHSA. So that's something that's definitely worth the time to look at, and it's easily available online, either at SAMHSA's website, just look for NREP, National Registry of Evidence-Based Practices, or Google it, and you'll be there. Gene, I've met families and individuals that sometimes deal with such severe mental illness over such long periods of time that they start to lose hope. What are your feelings on that? I think that, you know, hope is the cornerstone of any successful psychosocial treatment. You know, and DBT, throughout Marshall Linehan's writings, is this belief that everyone yearns for a life that's worth living, and that CTR has the same underlying focus, that everyone has a kernel of hope or aspirations that requires a trained clinician to tap into and explore and exploit and develop and bring it to life like a flower comes to life. And we've seen people just brighten up with both CTR and DBT. So I'm a big believer in hope. I'm sure within your extensive career, you've had a lot of interaction with NAMI and its members. I think, you know, NAMI is an amazing organization. You know, I was involved when I was director of training uh, here with Lori Flynn, who was one of the pioneers of NAMI. And uh, I remember running a conference here with a psychiatrist who I started with at Bronx Psychiatric Center, Ken Turkelson, who may still be working at New York Hospital Westchester Division. I did a conference with Lori Flynn, Ken Turkelson, and Courtney Harding. Courtney Harding, I'm sure, is near and dear to the hearts of NAMI leadership and membership. She's famous for having done the Vermont Longitudinal Study back around 1982 or so. And I had the three of them present at a full-day conference here. And it was a very inspiring conference. Ken Turkelson, the psychiatrist from New York Hospital, you know, he was interested in psychiatric rehabilitation and recovery, that it's not just a matter of finding the right drug, but it's a matter of tapping into, you know, the, the hope, the underlying resilience of people with schizophrenia. And, you know, Courtney Harding, her story, her story was that she was working at Vermont State Hospital 
which was the only state hospital in Vermont back in the late 70s. And she was going for her bachelor's in nursing, her BSN. And to get the BSN, you had to write a research paper for graduation. So she uh, approached the executive director of Vermont State Hospital and said, you know, I'm clueless as to what I can do for research. And he said to her, you know, I have all these files, all these medical records of patients who were discharged from Vermont State Hospital 15 or 20 years ago when Thorazine first started to be used. It would be interesting for you to go and see what has become of those 1,500 patients who we discharged back then. And so that's how the Vermont Longitudinal Study began, was she started tracking down all these individuals. And obviously, you know, some had passed away, but of those who were still alive, an unbelievable number were thriving in the community. And many of them required very little in the way of of support. Some required lots of support, but they had managed to stay out of Vermont State Hospital for all of these years. So she inspired in me a great deal of hopefulness about, you know, outcomes despite the seriousness of the the illness that we work with and that NAMI family members live with. So I tip my hat to NAMI. Gene, thank you for describing some of the different treatments available, sharing your experiences, and reinforcing the principles of NAMI, which include advocacy, education, and support. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the NPO Media Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers from NAMI, New York City, Staten Island. Their website is namistatenisland.org. If you or someone you know is interested in participating in an NPO Media Podcast, please email us at info at npomedia.org.